Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. You can never truly be sure who it is you sleep next to at night. Not until you've seen all of their masks. We wear masks when we go to school or work. We wear a mask with our family and friends. We even wear a mask to hide when we've been hurt or when we've been enraged. But not everyone holds those masks out on display. Others hide them deep inside and beneath them there might not even be a person at all, but an emptiness waiting to suck you in. This was an abstract idea that Travis Alexander came to learn far too late and would pay the price of his unknowing. Travis Alexander was born in 1977 in Riverside, California, and at a young age was introduced to Mormonism. He worked as a traveling salesman for a multi-level marketing company and fancied himself a motivational speaker at times. In 2006, Travis, a young professional hustling and striving to establish himself in the world of marketing and sales, traveled to the hot and arid desert city of Las Vegas to attend a marketing conference. The trip went about as one would expect. Panels, talks, promotional stands and networking were plenty, and Travis was in his prime, feeling fired up and motivated. But what Travis Alexander wasn't expecting when he made the trip to the City of Sin was meeting Jody Arias. Perhaps their eyes met across a crowded room, or maybe they bumped into one another, both passing ships, and luckily saw one another amongst the hustle and bustle of a Las Vegas conference. Travis thought she was stunning and Jody was immediately attracted to Travis, who seemed to be both level-headed and ambitious. That same night, Jody Arias accompanied Travis Alexander to a company dinner, a bold move for both of them. Jody was walking into a semi-formal, semi-casual group of professionals, all who had established some level of comfortability with one another. And for Travis, he was bringing a relative unknown into a situation where he'd want nothing more than to make the best impression possible in front of his colleagues. Luckily for both of them, Jody was sociable and bright, and both participated in conversation during dinner and even led it at times. They laughed, they ate, they drank, and as the evening started to dwindle down, and one after another, Travis's colleagues left the table and made their drunken way back to their rooms, until only Travis and Jody remained in each other's company. They spent the entirety of the night together, just talking and listening, learning what they could about one another in that short time. What's your favorite color? What's your favorite animal? Do you like your job? What do you want from life? 
The next day, Travis woke and got ready for the day before heading down to the lobby to meet with his work friends. It was that morning that Travis bravely proclaimed that he had met his future wife, and that woman was Jody Arias. They soon began dating and things progressed swiftly, as they tend to do when it appears to be love at first sight. There were hurdles, obviously, as there always tend to be, but when you're in love, you'll do anything to overcome them. Travis Alexander is a deeply religious and entrenched member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, came from a particularly conservative family, and thought it important that in order for himself and Jody to date, and for Travis's family to accept her, that she needed to convert to Mormonism. Travis obviously would understand if she said no, but Travis asked Jody, and he desperately hoped that she'd say yes to converting to Mormonism. And she did. A little over a month after the two had met, Travis and Jody went to church, where she received her baptism and joined the Church of Later Day Saints. But that wasn't the only obstacle entrenched between Travis and Jody and their happily ever after. Jody Arias and Travis Alexander lived in separate parts of the country, and it was becoming harder and harder to maintain their relationship. But there are very few things a person won't do for love, so Jody moved to be closer to Travis. Everything was perfect. Theirs was a picturesque romance, one that you would find in the dictionary beside the word love, or at least that's how it appeared on the surface. But there was friction below. The two were engaged in premarital sex, which made them sinners in the eyes of their church a church which was a huge part of Travis's identity, and Travis's friends were starting to worry for him, and couldn't help but feel that Jody was obsessed with him. In fact, they downright believed the relationship was toxic. Everything had moved so fast, and Jody herself had moved to be with Travis. She had converted to Mormonism, something she neither seemed to believe in or practice, and worse yet, it seemed she was obsessed with him. Jody followed Travis around, watched him, stalked him. She scoured through his social media regularly. She disapproved of him speaking to other women to the point of downright forbidding it. The leash which she had wrapped around Travis's neck was growing tighter and tighter as she held it with white knuckles. Then as abruptly as their flash fire relationship began, it ended when Travis broke up with Jody five months after they had met. Travis expressed to his close friends that he had been racked with guilt over his premarital sex with Jody, and that's why they had broken up. But given the events yet to come, it was more likely that he was worried about appearances. But that wasn't the end of their relationship. No, in fact, it was only the tip of the iceberg. Jody would do anything for love, and that included continuing the relationship, whether or not Travis wanted to. Five weeks after they broke up, Jody moved to be closer to her ex-boyfriend, relocating to Mesa, Arizona, where Travis lived. Jody continually and incessantly showed up at Travis's home, even when he wasn't there, letting herself in through the garage door. And then Travis quickly changed the code to the garage door. But Jody didn't seem to understand and instead let herself in through the doggy door. 
It was around that time that Travis started seeing other women, and one in particular a little more seriously, named Lisa. And foolishly, despite dating another woman, continued to see Jody Arias over and over and over. Maybe it was her dedication to him that was attractive and held his attention just enough to keep him from severing all ties. Maybe it was the company which he had at one point enjoyed so much, and now it brought him comfort. Or maybe it was the sex. Or maybe it was the obsession she held. She would do anything for him, including banging on Lisa's windows and doors in the middle of the night, before running off, trying to scare her away from Travis, who, in her mind, was still her man. Whatever it was, it would soon prove fatal for Travis. Travis Alexander told his friends, don't be surprised if I end up dead one day. Of course, they must have laughed it off like friends normally do. Jody was obsessive and controlling, but that was a long shot from being a murderer. That must have truly broken the hearts of those who were close to Travis, not being able to see the spiraling tragedy of their relationship and where it was headed. Around that time, Jody wasn't only terrorizing Travis's would-be girlfriends. She began stalking him on dates, hacking his Facebook, slashing his tires, and sending malicious and anonymous threatening emails to the women Travis was seeing. But, despite all that, despite all the trouble Jody Arias was causing... Oddly enough, Travis and Jody continued to maintain their sexual relationship with one another. In early 2008, Travis told co-workers that he planned to take Jody Arias on a work-related trip to Cancun, Mexico on June 15th. A misguided choice, but she had gone over exceptionally well with colleagues and seemed socially apt and perfect to network alongside. So perhaps that was his driving motivation. But a few months after claiming he would be traveling to Cancun with Jody, Travis changed his travel companion to another female friend. Coincidentally, shortly after Travis snubbed Jody on their planned trip to Cancun, on May 28, 2008, Jody's grandparents' home, where she also lived, was burglarized. And among other objects, a 25 caliber automatic Colt pistol was stolen and never recovered. On June 2nd, Jody woke up early. She put herself together and left her grandparents' home in Redding, California. She rented a car and drove hours and hours all the way to Travis's home in Mesa, Arizona, along with her camera. When she arrived, Travis let her in, welcoming her into his home like he had done countless times before. After all, they weren't together, but both seemingly enjoyed their sexual relationship and had maintained that one aspect. And that day was just an extension of that. Naughtily enough, on that day, Jody began snapping pictures of the two as they rolled around in bed with one another, taking pictures in various positions, and then while they showered with one another afterwards. A few unremarkable days passed. Seemingly, nothing had changed. The world still turned. The minutes still ticked by. But on June 4th, 2008, co-workers became worried when Travis Alexander missed an important conference call that evening. 
Then three days later, on June 7th, 2008, Jody arrived back in Redding, California and returned the car. But not before taking a detour on the way home to visit friends in Utah, where one noticed that Jody had dyed her blonde hair brown, and oddly her hands were covered in cuts and scrapes. But there was a million reasons why that might have been. Perhaps she'd taken a fall or had been doing yard work. Nothing that would set off any alarms. But when Jody handed back the keys at the car rental place, an employee noted that, curiously, the floor mats were missing. And not only that, there were stubborn red stains on the front seat of the car. Nothing that rental insurance wouldn't cover, though. Then another two days passed. Another two long days where none of Travis's friends could get a hold of him. Another two days of missed conference calls and no sign of Travis anywhere. Travis Alexander's friends had become increasingly worried as the days had passed with no contact with their friend. He had missed work, had not been answering emails, and hadn't been calling them back. So some of Travis's friends decided to pop by his home and check on him. What's going on? Um, our friend of ours is dead in his bedroom. We, we hadn't heard from him for a while. We think he's dead. His roommate just went in there and, and said there's lots of blood. I didn't go in, but I, I can give you the phone to someone who went in there. Can, yes, please, can you? Hello. Hi, so what's going on? He's, uh, he, he's dead. He's in his bedroom okay. in, in the shower. Okay, how did this happen? Do you have any idea? No, we have no idea. Everyone's been wondering about him okay. for well, a few said, days. She said that there was blood. So is it coming from his head? Did he cut no, his head? I, it, I, it's all over the place. Is there any weapons around? I, no, I don't know. I, not that I saw. I need all of you outside. Has he been threatened by anyone recently? Yes, he has. Okay. he has. A, he has an ex-girlfriend that's been bothering him and... and um, following him and slashing tires and things like that. And do you know the ex-girlfriend's name? Um, um, do you remember? Yeah. What's, what's his ex-girlfriend's name? That's Taylor. And do you know if he's ever reported it to the police? Um, her, his, her name is Jody. No, he hasn't reported anything about Jody's behavior. When they arrived, all was not well. Their worst fears were coming true. In the hallway, there was a giant pool of blood leading to the washroom where his body was found folded in on itself on the floor of his shower. Police quickly arrived to investigate and Travis's friends quickly mentioned Jody as a possible suspect. They joked about it in the past and so had Travis and it seemed their wild and far-fetched predictions had come true. Investigators found Jody's camera at the scene, which had all the pictures from that day Jody and Travis had spent together. The naughtier pictures which had been taken were time-stamped at roughly 1.40 p.m. on June 4th and chronicled the timeline for investigators clear enough. The final photograph of Travis alive was taken while he was showering staring into the lens, his expression hard to discern. Was it fear, or annoyance, or the start of a playful comment? 
That photo was taken at 5.29 p.m. that same day on June 4th. As police scrolled through the photos, though, they soon discovered what happened next. Photos taken just moments after that final living testament of Travis's existence showed Travis profusely bleeding onto the bathroom floor. As if police hadn't already found their smoking gun, they also discovered a bloody palm print along the wall in Travis's washroom hallway, containing the DNA of both Jody Arias and Travis Alexander. On July 15th, Jody was arrested at her grandparents' home and extradited to stand trial in Arizona for the murder of her ex-boyfriend, Travis Alexander. Investigators spent hours interrogating Jody, who insisted she had taken a trip but had never gone anywhere near Travis or his home. I've talked to a lot of people, and everybody's pointing a finger at you. I know. You know, everybody is saying, I don't understand what happened to Travis. I don't know who killed him. But you need to look at Jody. And sometimes the simplest answers are the correct ones. And that's one of the reasons I started looking at you a little bit closer. I'm kind of just putting two and two together. Well, I and, think and, it, and it kind of matches. Was it Monday the second? Right? And you didn't get to Utah until Thursday, you told me. Yeah, I got to Utah on Thursday. So Thursday, and that's the fifth? Mm, yeah, I think so. Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, yeah. Okay, so we have, it's like 48 hours there, but, well, obviously three days, but there's plenty, there's 48 hours. So this trip took you a little over 48 hours there. Um, I have a problem with this trip. Well, I went okay. first, too. Yeah, I know. Okay. I know you went down here. I've gone over this trip over and over in my mind and on paper. And even if, if there's still 20-some-odd hours even if you pulled over to sleep a couple of times. Oh, did I tell you that I got stranded? Yeah. Okay. You mentioned that. If you slept for 10 hours, I only slept for here and here, it would still leave 18 some odd hours or something else. Okay. This is what people are focusing on. This is trip that you took. I did not go near his house. Isn't there, aren't there? I pulled your cell records. Your cell phone was turned off between here here okay but the last place it pulled it was here the next place it turned on was here what does that show me oh well i began oh no 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 is there plenty of time for you to do that yes and i do i believe that you had come to visit travis yes i truly believe it Jody Arias pled not guilty to the charge of first-degree murder, although later admitted she had killed Travis, but not out of rage or malice, but only in self-defense. This flimsy explanation didn't go over well with the judge or the prosecuting lawyers who were quick to begin their campaign to seek the death penalty. In court, the prosecutor created an angelic image of Travis, he was a good man who had been seduced by the temptress Jody Arias, and then she had killed him in a fit of jealousy upon discovering he was dating another woman. 
Jody Arias's defense was quick to dispute the prosecution's account of events and instead claimed that Jody was a woman pushed to the edge by a controlling and dominant boyfriend. Travis Alexander had lured her back in and was so possessive he would make her wear a shirt that said on the front, Travis Alexander's, implying she belonged to him. But was it worn on Travis's request, or an odd and uncomfortable shirt printed by an equally disturbed ex-girlfriend? Is there really any question given the anecdotal evidence at this point though, creeps? As the trial moved closer and closer, and as the walls began to close in, Jody Arias petitioned the court for the right to represent herself, and was granted that right, but a public defender had to be present as well on her behalf. And then, a few weeks later, Jody tried to have letters admitted into evidence to aid her defense. In the letters written in blue pen on lined paper, Jody had claimed Travis had written with his own hand. There appeared to be, amongst other things, an admission by Travis to Jody that he was a pedophile. There was reasonable skepticism and the prosecution quickly ordered for the letters to be tested to try and refute their validity. They were quickly found to be a low-effort forgery that took not much more than the time it would take to assure the expert examining the letter had done their due diligence to prove they were fake. And then Jody expressed to the judge, presiding over her pre-trial and trial, that she was in fact actually over her head. Her letter forgery gambit had failed and she'd in fact surprisingly enough need real lawyers. On January 2nd, the trial of Jody Arias began and still the defense maintained she had killed him in self-defense. The prosecution also stayed close to their original statement, arguing that hers was a crime of passionate and disgusting jealousy and anger. Jody had asked again and again to get back together with Travis, and with every rejection became more and more incensed and infuriated with him. And when Travis started seeing other women, Jody had decided that if she couldn't have him, no one could. Jody Arias spent a long and excruciating 18 full court days on the stand, poring over her life for the jury in court talking about abuse she had suffered as a child at the hands of her parents, detailing intimate facts about her sex life with Travis, and how, over time, Travis had become both verbally and physically abusive towards her. Despite the colorful language she mustered and the storytelling the defense aided her in, the lead prosecutor told a story of violence and blood. Travis suffered through excruciating pain and ultimately died when Jody slashed the carotid artery and jugular vein and trachea. She made sure she killed him by stabbing him over and over and over again, and then finished him off by slicing his throat. It is also sure that during this attack, Travis Alexander suffered. He suffered pain every time the knife went into his body. And when the blade went down to his throat, it was certainly also extremely painful as he laid there still seeing. Still breathing, he could see up there, this knife, this woman, this blade coming towards him. Only death could relieve that pain, 
only death could relieve that anguish, and that is especially cruel. Jody Arias wasn't given the death penalty, but after 15 long and lasting hours of deliberation, Jody Arias was found guilty of first-degree murder. But that wasn't the end of the story. On October 21st, 2014, over six years after the murder of Travis Alexander, Jody Arias walked back into the courtroom once more on the first day of her retrial. It appears some of the jurors might have learned about the case from the TV. One of the dangers and benefits of 21st century media and its coverage of cases is its ability to disseminate the information indiscriminately and that includes to the jurors themselves. But despite the hopes of Jody's defense, she was once again found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole on April 13th, 2015. That didn't stop Jody's insistence that she wasn't guilty of the crime, but instead had defended herself against her crazed ex-boyfriend. On July 6, 2018, Jody Arias's attorney filed a 324-page appeal seeking the overturning of her sentence to the Court of Appeals. But on October 17, 2019, despite the argument that Jody's sentencing was affected by the social media frenzy that was ignited by the prosecutor in what Jody's attorney claimed to be an egregious and self-promoting instance of misconduct, the court held firm, stating based upon the overwhelming evidence of her guilt that the conviction would hold. Jody Arias is currently held in Arizona State Prison Complex Perryville in Goodyear, Arizona, where she is in a level 5 maximum security unit. In prison, an ex-cellmate, Donovan Baring, claimed Jody Arias told her she had help when killing Travis Alexander. The claim stated that Jody had a female accomplice who helped her kill Travis. Donovan even went on to name the alleged accomplice. When administered the infamous and often wrong polygraph test, she passed with flying colors. Donovan told Radar Online in an interview, if you cross Jody Arias, You've got to be careful because she does whatever it takes to get at you or harm you. She's the biggest manipulator you will ever meet. She has no conscience at all. She continues to use people that will let her use them. She's a psychopath 100%. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. 
This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors.